We'll be picking up again in Luke chapter 2, so I would invite you to take out your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at the second half of that chapter, starting with verse 21. Um, your Bible may break it off at 22, but we're going to back up to verse 21. If you don't have a Bible of your own or you don't have one with you today, then just put your hand up and uh, we'll make sure you get one. I uh, see Michael back there can get you connected. Anybody need a Bible? Because it's really important for us to be able to actually see what God has to say. Very often we get lazy, right? Say amen if you know we get lazy sometimes. We get lazy and we just take people's word for it. Because the pastor said it, we're just going to go with it. Because I read it in a book or heard it on a radio or that's what my grandma taught me. I'm just going to accept it as truth. But truth is found in the word of God and we need to make sure that we're on track with that. So uh, Luke chapter 2 and I want to encourage you also if you don't have a Bible of your own uh, that you can read and understand that is easy for you to, uh, to comprehend and make out. Uh, by all means, take one of ours. That's what they're here for. doesn't do any good sitting on a shelf, and it doesn't do you any good to have a Bible that's written in a language you don't understand or uh, <laughs> is too tiny for you to be able to read. That's not helpful either. Uh, so having said that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, today as we gather... We need one thing more than anything else, and that is to interact and have an encounter with you. Lord, I pray now that as we open your word together that we would clearly see your truth. That you would convict us of the pride in our hearts, of the sin that we've held on to. Lord, convict us of the self-righteousness that we're so often guilty of. Forgive us, Father, for thinking we know a better way and for the insult of trying to somehow impress you with our good deeds as if you didn't know our motives anyway. Lord, today, having sung songs to you and about you, having spoken to you in prayer and lifted up our needs to you, Lord, now, now as we open your word, we invite you to speak into our lives, to interrupt us where we are. We have so many things on our minds, all of the burdens of the week, the excitement of graduation events and Mother's Day. Cause us now to just pause, set all of that aside, to open ourselves up to you. Lord, guard us against the voice of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Who even now would do all that he can to deceive and distract and discourage us. Take that away. Father, we ask this boldly as your children so that we might only hear your voice and only contend with our own flesh and the patterns of the world that have gotten into us, knowing full well that you have conquered it all. We pray these things 
in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we um, look at Mother's Day today, it's, uh, it's important for us to recognize that not, it's not just mothers of young children that we're celebrating, all mothers. Uh, and to, today I want to specifically call out grandmothers. Raise your hand if you're a grandmother. Anybody in here a grandmother? Bruce, you're not a grandmother. Oh, wait, no, it's just, okay, just kidding. Uh, grandmothers have a, a special place in our hearts. They're mothers, but they're like, they're like you know, mother overlords, really. They're the, they're, the, they're the boss mothers. They're the champion mothers. So I'd like to read a piece from you. This is from James Dobson in his book, uh, What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women. Pretty good concept, right? This is a, a story. Uh, it's called What is a Grandmother? by a third grader. A grandmother is a lady who has no children of her own. She likes other people's little girls and boys. A grandfather is a man grandmother. He goes for walks with boys and they talk about fishing and stuff like that. Grandmothers don't have to do anything except be there. They're old, so they shouldn't play hard or run. <laughs> it is enough if they drive us to the market where the pretend horse is and have a lot of dimes ready. <laughs> or if they take us for walks, they should slow down past things like pretty leaves and caterpillars. They should never say hurry up. Usually... <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't write this, I'm just saying. Usually grandmothers are fat, but not too fat to tie your shoes. They wear glasses and funny underwear. They can take their teeth and gums out. I love this. Oh, goodness. Grandmothers don't have to be smart. Only answer questions like, why isn't God married? And how come dogs chase cats? Grandmothers don't talk baby talk like visitors do because it's hard to understand. When they read to us, they don't skip or mind if it is the same story over and over again. Everybody should try to have a grandmother, especially if you don't have television, because they're the only grown-ups who have time. That is, uh, <laughs> that is unique. You know, we do have a, an interesting take on things. We see things through our own lens, through our own perspective, and uh, not everyone has these joyful experiences. So I don't want to pretend that everyone does. But for those who had a mother like the, like the one that's going to be described here, uh, you know that's a double blessing. This is a, a piece called What is a Mother by Fred Cruz. Somewhere between the youthful energy of a teenager and the golden years of a woman's life, there lives a marvelous and loving person known as mother. A mother is a curious mixture of patience, kindness, understanding, discipline, industriousness, purity, and love. A mother can be at one and the same time both lovelorn counselor to a heartsick daughter and head football coach to an athletic son. 
A mother can sew the tiniest stitch in the material for that dainty prom dress, and she is equally experienced in threading through the heaviest traffic with a station wagon. A mother is the only creature on earth who can cry when she's happy, laugh when she's heartbroken, and work when she's feeling ill. A mother is as gentle as a lamb and as strong as a giant. Only a mother can appear so weak and helpless and yet be the same one who puts the fruit jar cover on so tightly even dad can't get it off. A mother is a picture of helplessness when dad is near and a marvel of resourcefulness when she's all alone. A mother has the angelic voice of a member in the celestial choir as she sings Brahms' lullaby to a babe, to a babe held tight in her arms, yet this same voice can dwarf the sound of an amplifier when she calls her boys in for supper. A mother has the fascinating ability to be almost everywhere at once, and she alone can somehow squeeze an enormous amount of living into an average day. A mother is old-fashioned to her teenager, just mom to her third grader, and simply mama to a little two-year-old sister. But there is no greater thrill in life than to point to that wonderful woman and be able to say to all the world, that's my mother. How is it that a mom can be all these things? What is it about a mother that makes them so unique, makes them so special? Why does mom do the things that she does? The answer is simple. She's a mother. That's what moms do. You know, I'm not trying to be trite. I'm not, not trying to be silly as I say that. But there is real powerful truth in this. Mothers do what they do because of who they are. That's the job. God has uniquely equipped mothers to be mothers and fathers to be fathers. And while that in itself is a sermon uh, that would take us more time than we have today, there is an important reality that we see here in Luke chapter 2 that we can see in our mothers as well. There is something about who you are that drives what you do. Activity flows from your identity. In fact, our core reality today uh, echoes that very concept. As we see in Luke chapter 2, this, these prophecies of what Jesus will do as he grows, this core reality stands out. God offers salvation to all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God offers salvation to all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is crucial. A couple weeks ago we talked about the fact that the gospel hinges on who Jesus is. But it's more than that. It absolutely does hinge on the fact that Jesus was both God and man. That he was exactly who God said he would be, exactly who he claimed to be, and he backed that up. If that were not true, then the rest of this could not be true. However, if what we see today, and through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, isn't true, if Jesus doesn't do the things that he is destined to do, because of who he is, then there is no gospel, there is no good news. Just like a mother, Jesus does what he does because of who he is. Because of who he is, Jesus was able to do what was, what was required to save sinners. Identity drives activity, but activity must accompany 
identity. Activity must accompany identity. In other words, if I am a baseball player, I do the things that baseball players do because I'm a baseball player. But if I don't do the things that baseball players do, it, I would be hard-pressed to actually call myself a baseball player. They go hand in hand. Say that core reality with me together. God offers salvation to all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the person of Christ and the work of Christ that brings us salvation. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 2. We're going to work through this. Then after we get through looking at the passage... Uh, it's, it's a fairly long passage, about 30 verses. Uh, and after we get done looking at this, then we'll come back uh, and fill in some of those blanks in your program. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 21. Let me explain why. If you have a newer edition of the NIV, it, it'll break it after 21 into 22. That verse in between, verse 21... Uh, applies equally to the passage before, and we read it with that first section, but it also fits well into this second section. It demonstrates the identity of Christ as they uh, take, verse 21, they take Him to the temple and they name Him. But it fits with the keeping of the law, which we'll see going forward here. So uh, without further ado, let's begin. Uh, forgive me if my wording sounds a little different. I have an older edition of the NIV which I consider to be superior, but Zondervan Publishing didn't agree with me. So, <clears throat> that's that. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord... Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so before we go on to the rest of this, let's make sure we understand what's happening here. Joseph and Mary, because they are good, God-fearing Jews, they keep the law. They do all that they can to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. When a woman would have a baby, both baby and woman were considered ceremonially unclean. So after a period of time set by God, they would go and be purified, go through the purification rituals at the temple <clears throat> to establish them once again as ceremonially clean. Whenever there was a shedding of blood uh, from the body, there was a, an uncleanness that God would have dealt with. And so uh, now they are coming, they have him named, and they present him before the Lord. So as they, <clears throat> excuse me, they circumcise him according to the law so that he will be identified as a Jew, this uh, covenant, which is it's a, a beautiful picture of the internal and external nature of our relationship with God. God saw fit to have them circumcised so that this would be an outward sign, something done in the flesh, of a covenant with God, and yet it was also something that was not, it wasn't on the face, it was in a private area because it was a private thing, in, not in that our faith is private, but our relationship with God is personal. This is something that would be done to identify who you are. So they did this with Jesus, then they bring him to the temple and they present the sacrifice. The sacrifice uh, is to pay for, to cover the sins of the mother and the child and the father as they bring these things in. All the, uh, all the people of Israel would always come to the temple with a sacrifice. 
You would never approach God empty-handed. They come offering the sacrifice prescribed for those who were too poor to bring the regular sacrifice. Luke points this out to show that Jesus came from a poor family. Too poor to bring the regular sacrifice, but to bring the the accommodation sacrifice, if you will. That's not a technical term. That's me just saying this so we understand it. This accommodation of uh, a dove or young pigeons. As we're dealing with this, we're seeing that Jesus came from the wrong side of the tracks. That's a theme that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Luke. Luke kind of focuses in on that more than the other Gospel writers. Jesus came for outsiders, for disenfranchised, for sinners, not for those who thought they were already pretty good. He came for those who were broken, who failed, who were wretched, who were poor, who were sick and diseased. And he made it right. We'll see that throughout this gospel. So as we get, um, as we get to this situation, they're there. Because of who they are, as good God-fearing Jews, they bring the sacrifice because that's what good God-fearing Jews do. Then we pick up here in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Pause for just a moment. The, The consolation of Israel, the comforting of Israel, the help of Israel. Most all translations render it comforting. There are a few Uh, who will look at it and and put in more useful words perhaps to you. We'll see consolation over and over. That's the one I meant to say. I think I just said comforting. That's the one that that most of the translations will render it. Occasionally, some translations will use comfort. Some will use help. But the idea here is that this righteous and devout man, like all who were righteous and devout in Israel, looked forward to God's promise of a deliverer, a rescuer, the Messiah, known in the Greek as a Christ. <clears throat> so having pictured that, um, having pictured that here uh, of who Simeon is, notice he's waiting for this. He's longing for it. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, We're not told how, just that it was. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. So nobody told him to go there except for the Holy Spirit. How did that happen? We don't know. I don't know if it was an audible voice, if it was an impression on his heart. Somehow, the Holy Spirit of God in him said, Simeon, today, right now, go to the temple. So there he is. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the, ten- when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What a beautiful, amazing thing to hear 
some stranger, ostensibly a stranger, in all likelihood they didn't know Simeon, come up, see your child. You want to talk about a happy Mother's Day. See your child and say, Lord, I've seen your salvation, and here he is. Salvation is a person. And Mary and Joseph are bringing this person who is salvation to the temple. And this stranger, moved by the Holy Spirit, speaks prophetic words over him. What a powerful moment this must have been. By the way, if you, if you really want to get a good take on this, I might jot this down. You can look it up later. Michael Card did a song years ago called Now That I've Held Him In My Arms, which captures this moment. It's also, uh, I think it's also known as Simeon's song. Look it up. Check it out. It's amazing. So uh, if we had time, we would have done it today, but we couldn't get everything in. So uh, <clears throat> verse 33. Not surprisingly here, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, <clears throat> This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Jerusalem, of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, you just had this great, beautiful moment. But this is kind of a downer, isn't it? Destined to cause, cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. There's no way they knew what he was talking about. We can look back on it. Luke will record it throughout the rest of the gospel. As some who were low are raised up and some who are high and mighty are brought down. Some stumble over him and are broken. Others he falls upon and they're crushed. Jesus, the Messiah, because of who He is, will cause the rising and falling of many. But to hear that your son will be a sign that will be spoken against. In other words, he'll be rejected and mocked. People will say that he's not of God, let alone recognizing that he is himself God. He'll be turned away. He'll be spoken against. If you're a parent, maybe especially if you're a mother, it's hard to hear your children criticized, isn't it? Some of you have seen at ball games, and if an umpire calls a strike when your kid you know, thought it was a ball, you get all up in arms, right? <laughs> you don't have to point. Yeah, we know. We know who she is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> About 16 people in here pointing. So... <clears throat> But that's natural, isn't it? Somebody comes against your kid, mama bear comes out. As a dad, my job is to protect my children. And if you come against my children, my back's going to get up a little bit. The child's barely born. And they receive the prophecy. Man, he is a light of revelation. He's going to show the Gentiles who God is. He's going to bring glory to Israel as we've been waiting for for centuries. But he'll be much maligned. He'll be strongly criticized. He'll be rejected. He'll be a sign from God that will be spoken against. Hard. Hard to deal with truth sometimes, isn't it? He will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. 
the last line of his statement to them must have in itself been piercing. As he says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Interesting that he includes that too. A sword will pierce this son. None of them could have known what would happen to Jesus on the cross. But God did. That's what he came for. Because of who he was as Messiah, Jesus came to be everything that Simeon is speaking here, even the things he doesn't understand. To be the sacrifice for us. He came with the expressed purpose of dying on that cross. That was always what he was destined to do. But the narrative continues. Verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Fenuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She must have been like a grandmother here in this picture. <laughs> Only she didn't have children of her own. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. I, let me say, I speculate that she doesn't have children of her own because there's no mention of her being taken care of. She seems to be on her own, and this picture of her as a widow uh, seems to indicate that there's nobody watching out for her. Maybe there were. Maybe that's just my speculation. So take that for what it's worth. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Now, I, I don't take that to be literally she never left the temple. I'm sure she went out to go to the bathroom and she would go and eat and all the things that people do. But this is more, uh, more in line with the colloquialism, like, you know, beast mode 365. We know I'm not always in beast mode 365 days a year. Or to say, you know, uh, Mark Foreman talks about the Packers 24 hours a day. He doesn't really. It just seems like it to us Bears fans. <laughs> It's that sort of a thing. My wife is always shopping. Now, if you know my wife, you know that's facetious because she'd rather get hit in the face with a shovel. But all of these exaggerations, literally, it's, it's a thing. It is. Very true. Um, but we use terms like this, and that appears to be what Luke is saying here. She doesn't appear to have a dwelling at the temple, in the temple courts, although that's possible. They had rooms there for various purposes out in the outer courts. But in all likelihood, this is a colloquialism, a, a, an idea of saying, she, this woman is there all the time. She just doesn't leave. Maybe the priests were thinking, and I wish she would leave. She's just here fasting and praying all the time. The picture is of a woman whose priority above everything else is to seek God's face, to hear God's voice, to know him. She has nothing else in her life that is a higher priority than to be at the temple worshiping day and night, fasting and praying. Verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment. Now, we don't see a lot of these things in the Gospels. A lot of times it's you know, kind of this happened and then on this other time this happened. And we don't necessarily get this indication. But this is an immediate thing. All of these things are happening at the same time. They're here in this momentary event to offer the sacrifice, to bring the child, and at the exact time that they show up, the Holy Spirit moves Simeon into the outer courts to come and see him. 
and indicates this is the child. In this very moment, Anna comes up to them. At that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Another way of saying the consolation of Israel, the coming of the Messiah. When David's city, Jerusalem, would be redeemed, would become what it was meant to be, the capital of God's kingdom. She got it. Simeon got it. Because the Holy Spirit showed them that this child was himself God's salvation. 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, underline that in your Bible if you would. Or mark it on your page if you're not comfortable with that. Highlight it if you've got a, an electronic device. But you want to see this. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. This is a transition marker that Luke uses here. He uses it earlier, uh, a similar formula. He uses it here. He'll use it again in a few moments at the end of the chapter to show this is kind of the, the transition of the story. End scene, fade to black. We're going to come in with another piece. So it's important to recognize that they did everything that was required by the law. Why? Because they loved God. Pretty simple, right? As Jews, as the chosen people of God, God had given them His law, His commands, the reflection of His heart. So to keep God's law, they did things. Now, when they weren't doing those things, when they went back to Galilee, they were still God's children. They were still Jews. They were still the chosen ones. But it was the doing that came out of the being that purchased their cleanness before God. Luke is establishing something here. He's establishing this connection between being and doing. He's establishing that there is relevance in what Jesus not only was, but what he would do. We're going to see that come together here in the next portion of this chapter. But if you'll think back to the first part, the first half of Luke chapter 2, if you're struggling, picture Linus telling Charlie Brown what Christmas is all about. If you'll think back to that, we saw the angels and the shepherds declaring the identity of Jesus getting to see that this was a supernatural baby. This wasn't just a baby. We see the angels breaking in and saying, this is a child of the Holy Spirit, not just some other kid, not some kid who's going to be really neat, who's going to grow up to be heroic, who will always please his mama. That's a good thing, and he will. That wasn't the point. He wasn't that that star student who would elevate himself with his accomplishments. He was God in flesh. And because he was God in the flesh, because he was Christ the Lord, 
he would do the things that Christ the Lord was meant to do. It would come from within. <clears throat> Let's take a look at the rest here. Luke makes this transition, and now we jump forward 12 years. So, you know, if you've seen things, we were just having a conversation the other night at Bible study about uh, various books and claims that people will make about the lost gospels and, you know, all these things that the church, some of you might remember the Da Vinci Code a number of years ago, a book and movie that was very popular, that uh, basically kind of created this, this scene that the church uh, suppressed various historical truths or various books that were written of the Bible because they really didn't like the way they portrayed Jesus or the, the way they, um, they didn't carry forth doctrine. Uh, let me just very briefly say that is what is theologically known as hogwash. Uh, none of those secret books, those lost gospels, were really secret and lost. Uh, they were dealt with and uh, nailed down in 300 AD. All out in the open, everybody knew about them. There were lots of claims. And essentially, just to kind of boil this down quickly, lots of people were making claims about Jesus because he had that much impact in the society. So Jesus was, was prominent, Christianity was growing, so people would start to make claims. People do that now. You want to tag on to a famous person. You want to get in on this movement, so to speak. So these spurious accounts would come up, some that were ascribed to particular uh, apostles of Christ that everybody knew was clearly determined these are not from those people. That's like, you know, uh, Brandon writing uh, a, an authoritative note from my mother and signing Mozzie at the bottom. It, it's just not true. It's fake. There was a lot of that. Call those letters pseudepigrapha. Essentially, if you could go with me on this, fake writings. There were other uh, things that were mixed in there as well. Some that were uh, not scripture, per se, uh, but were not of the same nature. So there were a lot of different books that maybe had some historical value, but the books that, were, um, that had these accounts of what Jesus did as a child using his magical God abilities, you know, like, like he's some sort of an Avengers, uh, future Avenger mutant from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, these are not reliable, never had been, <clears throat> and were universally rejected. It wasn't like this was a secret thing, let's hide in the corners. No, it was universally rejected. And the books that we have in the Bible, we can be very confident are the books that we were meant to, be, to have in the Bible. Again, a conversation for another time, but I want us to make sure that we just acknowledge that. So uh, as we look at, at this next portion, we skip 12 years. Why does it jump from Jesus being born and presented in the, in the temple to what we're about to see with Jesus back in the temple again. Because. There you go. It's Mother's Day, so I can use my mom's answers. Because I said so. Uh, but really, this is what God intended for us to know. The things that happened in those intervening years are summarized in what Luke says, and the child grew and became strong. It was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. 
That's all God needs us to know from his early childhood. Luke is establishing something here that we need to see. What, what applies to us, what is relevant to us, is not whether Jesus turned clay pots into doves as a magic trick to impress his friends. No. Some of us lost gospels claim such things. Whether or not that happened is irrelevant. It didn't, but whether or not it happened is really irrelevant. The point that Luke is trying to establish here is that Jesus was the Messiah. And the Messiah came to do God's business. And that's what we see in the next portion of the story, starting with verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Now, why did they go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover? Because they were Jews, and that's what Jews did. They went to celebrate because God commanded them to celebrate. They went to celebrate the Passover because God had laid that out for them in Exodus. The temple was established during David's reign. This one was, is Solomon's temple, but David was the one that uh, put forth instructions for it. And so uh, God had instructed them to only worship at a particular place, the tabernacle in the, in the desert, the temple in Israel. Uh, he had made some uh, other exceptions during various periods that he clarified for them. But here now, <clears throat> they're going all the time. They're making this pilgrimage, if you will, to Jerusalem. Before there was a Mecca, there was Jerusalem. And God's people came together to celebrate this ancient ceremony, remembering His deliverance of His people from bondage in Israel. They did what they did because of who they were. Verse 42, when He was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. They did this every year. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Now, what kind of parents are these, right? <laughs> Imagine you're at a family reunion, big family reunion. You got everybody there. You got your kids playing with all the other cousins and everybody else. They're hanging out, and everybody's going different places together. Hey, let's go. Let's all run to the beach, right? We're gonna, you know, go down from the family reunion party that you're having at grandma's house, you're going to go to the beach. And everybody's getting in cars with all the other relatives doing all their things together. And you think your kid's with Aunt Susan, but she, he's really with Uncle Billy. And Uncle Billy stayed behind. And you get to the beach, and you're like, uh, where's my kid? And Susan's like, I, I don't know. He wasn't with me. Last I saw him, he was with Uncle Billy. Well, where's Uncle Billy? Well, I don't know. Kind of like that. Whole bunch of people from the community, they're all related or friends, and not that surprising to be able to see that this could happen. So they're traveling together. <coughs> Clearly not helicopter parents as they're dealing with this. You like that one? That's, that's the funniest thing I'll say all day, and nobody ever got it. So anyway, uh, after the feast was over, while his parents uh, were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Verse 44, thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They're going by foot. This isn't like driving. They're, they're traveling for a day. Everything takes a little bit longer. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now they're probably starting to panic. Among the relatives and friends, no big deal. A little concerned, not sure where he is. Well, he's probably with Uncle Billy. Wait a minute. He's not. Now we've got to go back to the big city 
You mean our 12 year old, our 12 year old is alone in the big city? Now the heart starts beating fast, right? It's a little bit more than just, um, hey, where's the kid? <laughs> and I mean, imagine the added pressure, like, we lost the Messiah! So anyway, they're, they're a, little, a little concerned. They go back to Jerusalem, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. They started looking after one day. They found him after three days. They find him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Check this out, verse 47. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Wait, I thought he was asking them questions. They're amazed at his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now, there are a lot of different ways to take that word astonished. I would tend to believe that all of them apply. My kid is teaching the teachers. These rabbis, professors, if you will. These great learned men who are leading the nation and my kid's blowing them away. <laughs> my kid, that's my boy. Why weren't you with us? What's the matter with you? We told you to come with us and you didn't come. That's probably in there too because moms can have all that together. right? So it's all mixed up in it. Astonished in every way that you can probably be astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. If my mom were asking this question, have you ever, anybody remember the Flintstones? When Fred would say, yabba dabba do. That's what my mom would sound like. We used to call that the steroid voice. Her, her question would be a little bit like that. Jesus, because he's Jesus, answers in a way that I wouldn't have gotten away with. He says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Another rendering of that, which I think draws the picture. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? See, that's the picture of what we're seeing here. Jesus, as he's growing, like every child, begins to become more and more who they're meant to be. And he begins to use the gifts that God has put in him. He begins to develop the knowledge. He begins to start to do the work that he was born to do in the first place. It's just the beginning. But we see this begin to happen as he starts to, uh, to let who he is pour out publicly. Now it'll be another you know, 15 plus years before he comes into his, his full uh, public ministry. But we're seeing this growth. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? doing what I came here to do. But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth, to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. He was the Lord of all creation, but he was obedient to his parents. A little side note that we can all understand. Uh, we've got some uh, young people in here it doesn't matter whether you think your parents are wrong or right. It doesn't matter how big you get. Obey your parents. Obey your mom and dad. We've got some folks in here who are maybe a little bit older. Continue to honor your parents. 
But there's an important principle for us to see in what Jesus does here. Because he is the Son of God, the nature of God, yet being creator, is the loving heart and grace. That's why we see in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled himself and became like a servant. For you and I, as children of God, whether your boss is a jerk or is the best guy in the world, submit to authority. Always. Now, always submit to the highest authority. God is the highest authority. Whenever any other under-authority tries to get you to do something that doesn't honor God, obey the higher authority. But we do not have the right as Christ followers to decide whether or not we have to obey those in authority. We're not given that option. Obeying authority is part and parcel of following Christ. Tough to swallow sometimes, but just something we need to keep in mind. He went down uh, to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, just as she did earlier. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Luke's transition again. We'll jump next week into uh, this public ministry as Jesus comes on the scene as an adult. But there's, there's these big gaps. Why? Because in this opening scene... Luke is setting the stage for us. These first two chapters establish who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Both things are present throughout the rest of the gospel, and both things are foundational to understanding why we can be confident. Remember, that was the purpose of him writing this book in chapter 1, verse 4. I'm writing these things so that you may know the certainty of what you've been taught. Going forward from here, we're going to see those things that we've been taught, what Jesus actually did, what Jesus actually taught. But right now we're getting credentials in these first parts. God offers salvation to all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's fill in some blanks. First off, Jesus came to do what he was born to do. Jesus came to do what he was born to do. All right? So, as we established, what he does comes out of who he is. But he was born, as we saw in the first part of chapter 2, he was born as the Savior, as Christ the Lord. He was the Messiah. So, it follows then that Jesus would do the things that Messiah was to do. Right? He is Messiah, so he acts like Messiah. Does that make sense? Nod your head if that makes sense to you, right? Okay, so we're all on the same, on the same page here. If he's the Messiah, he's going to do the things that Messiah was to do. Okay, so because he is Messiah, his mission was rescue. Because he is Messiah, his mission was rescue. In fact, uh, Matthew 20, 28, your, your memory verse for today, Jesus says that, just as the Son of Man did not come to... He was speaking to those who were uh, going to elevate themselves. He said, look, if you're going to follow me, then you need to be the least among your brothers. He said, just as the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be our rescue, to give his life as a ransom for many. 
We mentioned a couple weeks ago that the theme verse, really, for the book of Luke is Luke 19.10. After encountering Zacchaeus, Jesus says, Salvation has come to this house today. Verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to do what he was born to do. Because he is Messiah, his mission was rescue. Further, we see that Jesus was able to do what he came to do. Jesus was able to do what he came to do. He came to do what he was born to do, what was in him, what was his nature. And you see, even in, in Simeon's prophecy, I've seen your salvation, the light for revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. Israel was to be a reflection of God. So what is the glory of Israel? It's the reflection of God in Israel. It's to bring glory to Israel by showing who God is. What does light do? Light shines. Light illuminates. Jesus, as the light to the Gentile, would illuminate who God is to all of us not in Israel. Because he was Messiah, his mission was to rescue, and he was able to do what he came to do. You know, this is an important concept for us to grasp. If he came with a purpose, but he wasn't able to accomplish that purpose, we talked about that a bit last week, that's why the gospel hinges on who Jesus is, because if I promise to give you a hundred grand, if you ask me for it, that promise means nothing. I ain't got no jack. So we're not going to be able to give you a hundred grand no matter how many times I promise it, right? Not appropriate for a pastor to say, Jack, is that? Okay, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes my wife has to censor me down here, keep me under control. Jesus, however, is able to do what he came to do. Because he was sinless, his sacrifice was effective. Because he was sinless, his sacrifice was effective. If he came to ransom us, if he came to save us from our sins, then he needed to be able to pay for those sins. Logical? Say amen if that's logical. Okay, so for him to, to do what he came to do, Jesus had to be sinless. He had to be free of his own sin. Because if the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 tells us it is, and I have sin, it's going to cost me everything just to pay for my sin. Right? Still following the logic? We're all on the same page? So, if I have sin, and, my, and I have to pay with my life for my sin, what do I have left to pay for your sin? Nothing. Because Jesus was sinless, his sacrifice was effective. In case you're not sure, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. That's not the Bible, that's the book. That's the Bible. That's too many things on the podium. Romans chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 1. Take a look at the first four verses here. 
Paul writes to the Roman church after establishing the human condition and God's plan for salvation. He says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Check this out now. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, which each one of us has, every single person, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Jesus came to be an offering for us. The sin offering is a reference to the, to the Levitical description of what God required. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Jesus was able to do what He came to do. His sacrifice was effective. We couldn't get saved through the law. You can't be good enough because your sin keeps that from being possible. Jesus doesn't have sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He who knew no sin, Christ Himself, became sin for us. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus had no sin. And when He was on that cross, in my place and in your place, He became our wretchedness. He stole my sin. He didn't have any of His own. He had to borrow mine. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In this cosmic trade, the one without sin took my sin and became sin so that I could have no sin. Because He paid for that sin. Because He was sinless, His sacrifice was effective. Third, we see that Jesus was enough to do what we needed to be done. Jesus was enough to do what we needed to be done. The sacrifice that Jesus made for us was sufficient. It was everything that was required. There is nothing more to add to it. It's not Jesus plus your good works. Or try the best you can, and then at the end of your best efforts, God will give you grace through Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel. And that wouldn't even be good news. Because none of us in this room, none of us, not one person actually does their best. If you're honest with yourself, you know that. You say, well, God knows I'm, I'm trying hard. No, you're not. Get over yourself. You try hard sometimes, but you're not doing your best. You choose things willfully, knowingly, that are less than optimal for pleasing God. And you know that. But we still do it. But Jesus, on the other hand, He was enough to take our entire Sin, to free us from all of the bondage, to break all of the chains. He was sufficient. Because He was sufficient, our rescue is complete. Because Jesus, in His sacrifice on our behalf, was sufficient, He was enough to do all we needed to be done, our rescue is complete. Turn with me to Hebrews. If you're still in Romans, go to the right. Hebrews, you're getting back toward the back of the book, but not quite. They get real small between Hebrews and Revelation. 
We're going to see Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to pick up with verse 24. We'll pick up with verse 23 because 23 starts in the middle, or 24 starts in the middle of a sentence. But just so we understand the context, the book of Hebrews was written to be able to connect the dots for God's people. To, to be able to go from the Old Testament law and prophets to see their fulfillment in Christ and how that applies and changes everything for us who are in Christ. It was written specifically for Jews. And we Gentiles get to benefit from it. So in chapter 7, the writer is equating or connecting Jesus with Melchizedek, the priest who did not have a lineage, who came out of nowhere. In fact, many theologians think that Melchizedek in the Old Testament that Abraham encountered uh, was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So this is, uh, you might call it a Christophany or theophany where you have an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament before He was born in the New Testament. I don't know whether that's true. I can say it would be really hard to refute, and it would make sense, but it doesn't have to be true for the rest of this to fit. So He's equating Jesus with Melchizedek, who comes not from Aaron's line, before the priesthood exists, before the law is given to Moses, Melchizedek comes. And again, part of the testimony here is Jesus is before all things, right? So Melchizedek comes. He doesn't have a line. He's not tied to these things. And the writer is pointing out, as God said, that you, he makes this promise in the Psalms, you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And he establishes that in the temple priesthood, the priests go in and make sacrifices over and over and over again. And with the, the blood of bulls and calves and lambs, they're, they're making this atonement for the people's sins. But they have to keep doing it over and over again because this is not complete. It can't be. The blood of bulls and calves can't take away my sin. It's an act of obedience, and then God forgives by faith. It was a temporary covering. So they had to continue to repeatedly offer and offer and offer. And what made it worse was the... Uh, the priest had to sacrifice for his own sin. So it couldn't be this complete sacrifice. Now, getting to Jesus, and this is our point, Jesus was enough to do what, need, what we needed to be done because He was sufficient. Our rescue is complete. We see the picture of that here. We'll start with verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely, I would underline save completely, those who come to God through him. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Excuse me. You ever reading and your contacts go fuzzy on you? Give me just a sec here. When you listen to sermons on the radio, this all gets edited out. They have the same problems. All right. right. Uh, He's able to save, excuse me, to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. 
Verse 36, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Because He was sufficient, our rescue is complete. There's nothing left for us to do. Not communion, not baptism, not right living. None of that needs to be added to the work of Christ. There isn't some means through which we obtain this grace other than faith. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And even the faith is not of your own choosing or your own will. It's a gift of God. So there's no room for boasting or thinking that you're religious and righteous and you've done your best part. It's not how it works. Jesus is the priest who offers the complete sacrifice of himself for all of us. And he breaks the bonds with sin forever. The rest of the Gospel of Luke, he'll be teaching us what that means. So I won't take time to, to develop that thought more. You're going to have to come back. All right. As Luke records these stories of Simeon, Anna, and Jesus at the temple, he establishes the foundation of truth that God offers salvation to all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's available to every nation. It's available to everyone who will come to Him by faith. But it hinges on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, why does this matter? Why does any of this matter? Why does He include it? Why is it important for us to know? First, if Jesus were not all that He is, He would not be able to save us from our sin. If Jesus were not all that He is, He would not be able to save us from our sin. And in addition to that, I guess the converse of that, if Jesus didn't do what was required for, us, for our salvation, then He couldn't be God's Messiah. If He didn't do what Messiah was sent to do, then He wouldn't be the Messiah, right? So, he needed to be who he was, and he also needed to do what he did. If he weren't all that he is, he wouldn't be able to save us from our sin. He wouldn't be sufficient, but he was. If he didn't do what was required for our salvation, he couldn't be the Messiah, but he did. If Jesus were not who he is or failed to do what he did, we would be without hope. We would remain dead in our sins. we would still be dead in our sins if Christ had not done what He did because He is who He is. Now what difference does this make in my daily life? If I'm going to be you know, trying to put all this stuff into practice, so what's the big deal? How does this affect me going forward? My salvation doesn't depend on my own ability to merit it. It depends solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see it in Romans, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I mentioned earlier, it's by grace that you're saved through faith. 
And even that's the gift of God. So there's no room for boasting. It's not of works. It's the power of Christ in me, His resurrection power, that allows me to live for God as His Spirit transforms me from within. Romans 12, 2 says that, that we are to renew our minds. We'll be transformed as we renew our minds. My identity in Christ is the key to daily experience of the victory He won for me. He did it all. But if I don't understand who I am, then I'm not going to be able to live in that victory that He's already purchased. He'll spend the rest of the gospel laying that out for us. Yet in the same way that His activity flowed from His identity, I also must live in Him. Colossians 2.6 says, Just as you received Christ, so live in Him. All right, let's close this out. Because God offers salvation to all in the person and work of Jesus Christ, three things that I can be confident in. I don't have to be fearful. I don't have to be timid. I don't have to be overcome. I don't have to despair when I fail. I don't have to wonder if God's going to reject me because I've made these claims, but you know, I haven't lived up to it well. Because God offers salvation to all, not through our works, but through Christ's works, I can be confident in my salvation. It doesn't hinge on me. It's all about Him. So I can be confident in my salvation. I can be confident in my destination. Because I am a child of God, because I've been saved, He keeps me. He keeps the promises that I've made. And He has sealed me, and He will finish what He started. Philippians 1.6 says we can be confident that the one who started this good work in us will bring it to fruition, will carry it out until the day of Christ Jesus. I can be confident in my destination. My destiny is to be with Him. That's my future. Lastly, I can be confident in my transformation. Man, I, I keep trying, but I can't seem to break these habits. Stop trying. It's not about you breaking these habits. Focus on Christ. When you focus on Christ and stop trying to fix yourself and simply let Him live through you, you'll still deal with those habits, but it won't be you. When you and I try to muster up our holiness, our righteousness, so that we can live right and prove that we're Christians, our focus is on the wrong place. We put our focus on ourselves again. When we do it so that we don't disappoint others, we put our focus on humans. That's the fear of man. And boy, the Bible sure condemns that. But when we put our focus on Christ, and we work, we, we do work hard in that relationship, in understanding Him and being more like Him, just letting that love saturate us, then who we are on the inside begins to work itself out on the outside. And we will be transformed. We can be confident of this, even when we stumble and fall. God offers salvation to all in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let's walk with confidence. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for all that you've done for us in him. We worship you, Lord, first and foremost because of who you are. If you had never answered one prayer, you are worthy. 
if we didn't understand anything that you did and everything seemed to be uh, upside down for us and so often it does you're still worthy simply because of who you are but father we thank you that because of who you are you've done all that is needed for us to be your children all we have to do is receive it make us bold and confident in christ because of that knowledge we pray this in his name amen